The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I direct your attention to John chapter 6. We are going to begin studying today the famous Bread of Life Discourse. And we've been waiting for this for, for a while. I'm going to read verses 22 to 36. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. This is God's holy word. Last week we ended, you remember, or two weeks ago, with a three-for-one miracle. Remember the disciples were in the middle of a, a windy night on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus came walking on the water. Then he got into the boat. He calmed the storm, and then he bent the space-time continuum. Immediately, that boat just arrived on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. 
And now we're here at the beginning of what takes place next. And really, these next three verses lay out the context for us. If you look at verse 22, John records, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with His disciples, but that His disciples had gone away alone. So, if you look at uh, verse 24, the crowd looks for Jesus, apparently, and they see that He's not there. It says, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there. Apparently, they searched for Jesus. They went out among, amongst the hills. They looked for Him. They couldn't find Him. And then they deduce, well, uh, we saw that there was one boat here that, that His disciples uh, left in, but it's gone, and yet Jesus is inexplicably nowhere to be found. What happened probably during the night when Jesus dispersed the crowds is this town, Tiberias, was a few miles uh, up the shoreline, and members of the crowd walked up the shoreline to this town and retrieved boats. And in verse 23, it says, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So, what essentially happens is people go, uh, they send their friends, their family members, they get boats, they come back in the boats, and a mini Dunkirk evacuation happens. These thousands of people then get in the boats, and even though they don't know where Jesus is, they go across the Sea of Galilee, and they guess He's in Capernaum because Capernaum was Jesus' home base. Remember, this is the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry. People knew that Jesus operated out of Capernaum. He'd healed many people out of Capernaum, so it's the most likely place. So, that, so they get in the boats, and that's where they go. Verse 24, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor His disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So, they, they're going, if, if you have a, a map in your mind of the Sea of Galilee, about seven miles across, 13 miles long, they're going from the east shore to the west shore. And they get there, and they're looking for Jesus, and somehow they, uh, they find Jesus, and they end up in the synagogue there in Capernaum. And we know that because verse 59, if you look down, it says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as He taught at Capernaum. Interestingly enough, you can go visit that synagogue today. They've excavated it, so you could probably fit maybe 200, maybe 300 people in the synagogue, and there were probably hundreds, if not over a thousand more, outside listening to this conversation which transpires with the Bread of Life discourse. And I, and I say it's a conversation because it, it's not really a sermon so much as it is a dialogue that Jesus has with these people. And this uh, discourse, the Bread of Life discourse, is a very famous discourse. People uh, always reference it, and I think it's well known because of the dramatic sweeping summary statements that are found throughout the discourse. I'm just going to direct your attention to a few of these. If you look at verse 35, Jesus said to them, this is the great I am statement, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a claim of deity. I am is the divine 
name of God. Verse 40, if you look at verse 40, notice how this essentially summarizes the entirety of Christianity, the whole Christian doctrine. He says, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So, the future judgment and the future resurrection and salvation for all of those who believe in the Lord Jesus. And if you look at verse 54, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. A statement of appropriating Christ in faith, and again, the promise of a, a future resurrection. So, these statements are, are very authoritative. They're very sweeping, and for that reason, people have looked to this bread of life discourse, which is only found in John's gospel. But there's another fascinating thing about this discourse, I think, that I want to draw your attention to, and that is who he's speaking to, who he's speaking to. And what you see in John chapter 6 is this problem of false discipleship, a problem of false discipleship. A false disciple is someone who followed Jesus throughout His ministry, but never believed in Him as Lord and Savior. So, they were followers. In some sense, they were disciples of Jesus. They followed Him throughout His ministry. They had some fascination with Jesus. They liked Jesus. They were interested in Jesus, but they never became true disciples. If you look at verse 26, notice how at the very beginning of the Bread of Life discourse, Jesus opens up calling them out, confronting them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're seeking me for the wrong reasons. And then if you look at verse 66, you see how this whole thing ends. Look how it ends. This is, this is the end, essentially, of His Galilean ministry. Look how it, how it ends. After this, many of His disciples, His disciples, turned back and no longer walked with Him. And Jesus turns to the twelve and he says, do you want to go away as well? On face value, it seems like Jesus' ministry has come to a galactic failure, right? If we're counting, counting numbers, his whole Galilean ministry ends with the massive crowds that were following him, leaving him, deserting him. And then, if that's not all, look what happens in verse 70. Jesus ends the chapter in this dark tone. He said, Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil. So, even amongst the twelve, there's a false disciple. Look at the last verse. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he one of the twelve was going to betray him. So, even one of the twelve 
is a false disciple. This issue of false disciples is an important one that we need to look at and an important thing that we need to consider, not just regarding the ancient world and Jesus' ministry in the first century, but we need to look at it from the context of our own experience and our own lives. We don't just need to think about this hypothetically, but we must ask ourselves whether we are a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ or a false disciple. You know, Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13. It's the parable of what's called the wheat and the tares. And he says, a man goes and and plants wheat in a field, and then at night someone comes and plants tares in the field. And when Jesus explains the parable, he basically says, look, in the kingdom you're going to have wheat. What do the wheat represent? True disciples. But growing alongside them, looking like them, you have the tares. When does Jesus say all of that is sorted out? Does he say it's sorted out right then? No, he says it's sorted out when Jesus comes back, and then you see everybody's true colors. And then Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the tares on the last day. So what Jesus is talking about with this whole issue of false discipleship is not people out in the world. I want you to hear that. It's very clear out in the world who isn't a believer. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that out. He's talking about people that claim the name of Christ. There's a difference. You have some that are true, some that are false. So how do you know what a false disciple is? Well, Jesus is going to give, essentially right here in the first few verses, the qualities of a false disciple. And as he's doing that, he's also going to give the anecdote. What must these false disciples do to become true disciples? So he diagnoses the sickness, and he gives the remedy at the same time. And for that reason, I think this is very helpful for us. I want you to be thinking, am I a true disciple, or do these qualities of a false disciple apply to me? And if so, then listen to what Jesus says. So look at verse 25. This is how the discourse begins. It begins with a question. It's an obvious question. They want to know how he got from A to B. How did you get from the east side of the Sea of Galilee all the way over here to Capernaum? When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Just quickly notice that they do not call him Lord. They do not call him Master. They call him Rabbi. They essentially call him essentially uh, a teacher. So they haven't moved to this place of resting in Him as their Savior. And Jesus comes out confronting them in verse 26, and you see the first quality of a false disciple. Jesus names it, and that is that they are materialistic. Materialistic. For them, Jesus was simply a means to a physical end. Notice what He says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about in ethical situations, you can do the right thing with the wrong motive. 
this is a right wrong. They're seeking Jesus, that's the right thing, but they're doing it with the wrong motive, Jesus says. He says, you're seeking me because you ate your fill of the loaves. One commentator, Leon Morris, said these people were crass materialist. They were not moved by full hearts, but by full bellies. That verb that Jesus uses to describe eating your fill of the loaves is a word that you would use to describe animals feeding at a food trough. So it's, it's, not, it's, it's a very descriptive way of describing how these disciples are just merely going after food. Ever been to a Golden Corral? <laughs> you know it's headquartered right here in Raleigh? Yeah. I used to go there with my Marines. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's talking about the guys going to the food trough, people grazing. And notice his corrective in verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus' corrective is that the false disciples needed to stop working for the temporal, material things. So things like food, shelter, clothing, healing even, longevity of life, all those things that, that we naturally seek. He says you need to stop seeking after those things and seek the transcendent realities which I'm offering. That word work, ergazomai, means to toil to commit to something, to be in earnest about something. So Jesus says, stop being in earnest for the temporal material things of the world and start being in earnest for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. That phrase, Son of Man, notice how he uses that to describe himself. That is a reference to deity. Daniel in Daniel chapter 7 describes the Messiah coming as the Son of Man. So when Jesus says, I'm the son of man that, that, that gives you these things. He's saying, I'm God. I have the divine power to deliver. And only he has this power, and he, and he references the fact that on him, God the Father has set his seal. Uh, a seal was a wax, essentially, stamp that you would put on a letter that, that served as a verification of something, right? So Jesus has said, on me the Father has verified that I am the Son of Man. How did he do that? Well, you remember at his baptism, the, the words from heaven that God spoke. He did it through the signs that Jesus was doing, the, the miracles. He did it through the fulfilled prophecy, all the scriptures that had been fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Essentially, you can go read John chapter 5, which we studied, and Jesus walks through all the proofs for how he has been verified by God the Father as the Son of God, the Son of Man, so that He is the only one who has the spiritual power to give this true spiritual life. And this is a corrective I think we all need to heed, whether we've been a Christian for two minutes or 20 years. We need to become Christians that aren't focused on the material, temporal things of this world, but on the transcendent things. There's a sense where we've been so much influenced by the prosperity gospel. You know what the prosperity gospel is? 
And the prosperity gospel says it's God's will for you right now in this life to be happy, wealthy, uh, have healing all the time, and that that is God's will for you in the kingdom now. And the only problem with that is the life of Jesus himself and the apostle Paul and the other apostles. When you, when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ, his ministry, do, do you remember what he said? He said the Son of Man has, has a, a big mansion here. What did he say? The Son of, Man, Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. How many clothes did he have at the cross? One tunic. One tunic. This whole idea that you come to Christ, and, and the reason that you come to Christ is so that you can have a bigger paycheck is not found in the Bible. Now, Jesus does say that God, your Father, will take care of your temporal needs. He does say that. But what He says is, don't seek after those things. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, everything I've just been describing. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus said earlier in Matthew 6, 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." So we need this constant corrective because we live in a very temporal, physical, material world. And it's so easy for us to set our gaze on these things, right? It's so easy for us to start looking at what we're wearing, what we're driving, the house we live in, the food that we're eating, and to begin to become consumed with those things. But Christianity, my friend, is about looking with our eyes to heavenly things. True disciples live with their feet planted on the earth, but with their gaze set in heaven. Hebrews 13, 14 says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Paul says, Colossians 3, 3 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. Listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't enjoy God's gifts here. Every good and perfect gift comes from your Father who is above with whom there is no variation and shadow due to change. Enjoy the gifts that God gives you. Just, just don't don't worship those things. Don't seek those things. Set your mind on things that are above, where Christ is seated. Set your mind on the future second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is called the blessed hope. Set your mind on the spiritual blessings that are yours in the heavenly places. Set your mind on the fact that Jesus is preparing for you a mansion in heaven. Set your mind on His glory and His honor, His character. One of the reasons why you might have anxiety or even depression is because you're so infatuated with the things here. You set your mind on the things above, 
and your anxiety about the things here starts to fade away. Trust God. Do you not think that God will meet your needs? God takes care of the birds, Jesus says. How much more will he take care of you, his child? Don't worry about these things. Think about heavenly things. Think about the kingdom of God, and all these things will then be added to you. That's the difference between a true disciple and a false disciple, is a false disciple never gets to those things. A false disciple only sees the material world, never sees the transcendent world that Christ has offered them. That's the difference. So that's the first quality of a false disciple. They're materialistic. The second is found in verse 28, and that is they are confused. They are confused. Look at verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So notice the question they ask. They fundamentally misunderstand what Jesus has said. Jesus said in the previous verse that he gives the food that endures to eternal life. He gives it. It's a gift. But in the mind of the false disciple, salvation is always something that must be earned. Did you get that? In the mind of the false disciple, salvation is always something that must be earned. Yeah, Jesus does his part but I need to do my part. Jesus died on the cross, but I need to go to church and be a part of a Bible study for me to go to heaven. Jesus rose from the dead, and I need to rise up off the couch and volunteer somewhere. There is a complete misunderstanding of grace on the part of these false disciples. It's like there's there's hands over their eyes, and they don't understand what Jesus is offering them. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with someone and walked them through the plan of salvation, that you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ came into this world, took on our humanity, died on the cross in your place for your sins, but because He was perfect, He didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead Three days later, he ascended into heaven, and he promises salvation to everyone who believes in his name. That's the gospel. And I'll I'll walk someone through the gospel, and I'll ask them, do you understand that? They say, oh, yes, pastor. I get it. I really understand it. I understand what Jesus did. And then I'll ask them, well, are you sure then that you're going to go to heaven? And they say, well, I'm probably about 90%. I'm like, wait. Why are you 90%? Well, I just need to be a better person. I need to start coming to your church and start reading the Bible. It, no, 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 no. That's not it. But what happened there? It's confusion over the gospel. They don't understand grace. A.W. Pink said this. He said, the carnal mind is flattered when it is consciously doing something for God. The false disciple always has to put works on the, on the left side of the equation. It's Jesus plus this. Yet throughout the gospel, it's always grace that is affirmed. 
John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Next verse, John 1.17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John 1.29, the statement of John the Baptist, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then, of course, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that's just the first three chapters of John's gospel. It's all of grace. It's all what God has done for you in Christ, not what we do for God. So Jesus gives the corrective. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus says, no, forget all your good works. Forget all your striving before God. You need to know this one work of God, and this is it. It's rather this. You simply believe in him. Who? The one whom God has sent, him. Underline that word believe, believe. It's the Greek word pistuo, and that's a very important word in John's gospel. He uses it 98 times. It's used in the New Testament over 200 times, and most of these references are found simply in, in John's gospel, 98 times. He uses this word to encompass both repentance and faith. He never uses simply the word faith or metanoia, repentance. He always uses this word pistuo, and it means to trust, to rely upon, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' point it is, is that it is only belief, this trust, in him that results in salvation. And notice also that Jesus describes this as a present activity. It's not something that you did in the past. It's not that you believed in him, but it's that you believe in him. Sometimes I talk to someone and they say, oh yeah, I know Johnny's saved because uh, t- 25 years ago he walked an aisle or he, he, he came forward at a, at a revival service. So I'm sure he's saved. But does he actually believe in Jesus? Oh, well, no. He, you know, he renounced Christ a few years ago and basically lived like the devil. Well, true salvation, true discipleship is a present belief. It's not a, a past thing that you did. It's, it's if you believed, you will really keep believing all the way into the future. And that's the difference with a true disciple. There's always this present activity of believing, whereas the false disciple fundamentally misunderstands the gospel itself. They do not understand the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They do not understand His work on the cross. They do not understand the meaning of the resurrection from the dead. There's a fundamental misunderstanding about the gospel. And this is important because these people might like Jesus. These people might be sitting next to you in the pew this morning. These are the people that, do y'all have letter jackets? Do y'all still wear letter jackets? In my high school, do y'all know what a letter jacket is? It, you know, it has the, your, school, your school emblem here, and it has like on the back all your sport teams, and if you're a cheerleader, you're in the band. At my high school, everybody would get Philippians 4.13 on the back of their letter jacket. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's like everybody in the whole school had that on the back of the letter jacket. But I'll tell you what, over half the school was doing things they weren't supposed to be doing on the weekend. You're like, okay, are you a true disciple or are you a false disciple? You can be a famous philosopher, know a lot of things about Jesus. You can like Jesus. You can wear the WWJD bracelets. You can wear the, the corny Christian T-shirts. You can do all those things, but without faith in Christ, you're not a true disciple. So that's the second quality. They're confused. It's materialistic. They're confused. The third is that they remain unconvinced about Jesus. Unconvinced. In their heart of hearts, the false disciples never truly trust Christ in the soul, but rather everything stands to be further tested. There's always a need for a further test. If I could only see this suspicion satisfied, then I would believe. If I, if I could only see another sign, then I would believe. If I could only have been there at the resurrection and saw the, the stone rolled away and seen that Jesus wasn't in there and then seen him there in person, then I would believe. There's always a need for a further test with the false disciple. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.7 that these people are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Notice what they say to Jesus in verse 30. Now, remember, when is this taking place? After the feeding of the multitude. These are the same people that literally just ate the bread and the fish that Jesus multiplied. Remember that. These are the same people that have been following Jesus for months on end. You know, little Timmy was healed, right? These are the same people that have seen the healings, the signs. And they say to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They want another sign. This is the great problem, Paul says, with the Jews in the first century, is that they were never able to, to push past their unbelief into faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, he says, the Jews demand signs. Apparently, everywhere he went, that was the case. Give me a sign. How do I know that Jesus is the Messiah? Give me another sign. I want another sign. Notice what they say to him in verse 31. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, they quote Psalm 78, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Apparently, scholars say that there was a legend at the time, and the legend was this, that when the Messiah would come, that he would start raining down manna from heaven, and that would be the mark of the Messiah. So essentially what they're saying to Jesus is they're saying, look, we saw the bread that you multiplied. We saw it. We were there. We ate it. But that's not good enough because for, for you to be proven as the Messiah, you, you got to call it down from the sky. Uh, the bread that, that you 
multiplied, that was just normal bread from a boy. You know, you look back in the Old Testament, Jesus, Moses prayed and God brought manna from, from heaven. Oh, and Jesus, man, it's great that you did this, but how many times did you multiply the bread? How many times did you do it? Once. How many times did it happen for the children in the wilderness? Every single day, except Saturday, for 40 years. So, Jesus, don't you see? Here's, here's you, and here's the people of God in the Old Testament with Moses. Here's you, here's them. Your bread is uh, earthly bread. That bread was bread from heaven. So what you need to do is you need to do a sign, Jesus, to prove that you are indeed the Messiah. And what you need to make is a continual bread train. You need to continually rain down hot bread from the sky. So look at what Jesus says. Look how he corrects them in verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread. Who was it? It was God. Mo Moses was just the man who beseeched God for you. He says, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Notice the Father gives is in the present tense. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about himself. He's saying, I am the true bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses who gave you that bread in the Old Testament. It was God, and now God has given you something even better, this true bread from heaven, referring to himself. And now, look what he says in verse 33. He says, for the bread of God is he. I mean, he couldn't be more explicit. He's, he's talking about himself. It's, it's, not a, it's not something you eat, you eat physically. He says it's he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So notice how Jesus is confronting that argument. He's saying, look, that manna, yeah, it came down from the sky, but where does Jesus come from? From heaven. He, he's, he comes from someplace much higher. He, he's from heaven itself. And he says, look, that manna was given to the children of Israel in the wilderness, but what does he come to do? He says, gives life to the whole world, not just the Jew, but the Gentile as well, people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. So, this bread is much more expansive. And what Jesus is doing is he's confronting their hardness of heart, their need to see another sign. And he's saying, look to me, see me. I am the bread of life, the true bread that God gives from heaven. But yet they're unconvinced. They're unconvinced. We need to confront our own unbelief in our hearts. And I just want you to think where you are at with the Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any area of your heart that remains unconvinced? Where you said, Jesus, if you just did this for me, then I would believe. Or Jesus, 
I like you, but I really have a problem with the Old Testament. Jesus believed the Old Testament. I talk, this is the one thing I talk to people all the time. I believe in Jesus, but yeah, I can't believe that Jonah was swallowed by a fish. Jesus believed that. He said, just as Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the ground for three days. Jesus believed that. Is, is there an area in your heart that is unbelieving? Do you believe every word of this book? Jesus did. Over and over and over again, Jesus said, have you not read? What was he talking about? This book, this, the Word of God. Be very careful that you do not have an unbelieving heart, but that you surrender it all to Christ. Listen, I'm not asking you to take a blind leap into the dark, and neither is Jesus. He's done the signs. There, there's no denying who He is. Jesus is simply saying, look, at some point, you got to stop putting up that wall of resistance and simply believe in me. And the scary thing for so many of these Jews, and this is what Paul said years later, at least 20 years later, Jews demand signs everywhere he went. Th this hardness of heart kept going, and in many ways, you, you see this now with so many Jews, so many Gentiles, hardness of heart towards Christ. If that's you, pray that the Lord would soften your heart. Pray that the Lord would give you a new heart, heart that believes in Him, heart that loves Him, and a heart that submits to Him. So that's the third quality of a false disciple. They're unconvinced, they're confused, they're materialistic, and then fourth, they are misapproaching. They are misapproaching. This is really important that you understand this last point. There is a certain way we are to constantly approach Jesus. A true disciple approaches Jesus with humility, with meekness, but we also approach Him not letting anything come between us and Christ. The true disciple always presses into Christ and closes with Christ. We dispense with formalities. We don't hold Jesus at arm's length. Think about the woman who pressed into the crowd just to touch Jesus' garment and be healed, or the, the man with the sick servant at the end of John 4 who walks miles and miles to come to Jesus, or think of Peter coming outside uh, the boat to walk to Jesus on the water. When you realize your need, you won't let anything between you and Jesus. You dispense with the formalities, and you come to Him as a beggar in search of food. But notice how they come to Jesus, verse 34. They said to Him, Sir, Sir, give us this bread always. They don't come to Him saying, Master, forgive us of our sins. We are unworthy. We need this bread that you are talking about. They keep Him at arm's distance. They give a term of respect. Sir, it's a term of 
respectful acknowledgement, but they completely misunderstand what he's talking about. They still think he's talking about physical food. In other words, sir, we'll, we'll follow you. We'll follow you, Jesus, as long as you give us this bread, good sir. So they fail to approach Christ properly. They don't approach him as Savior and Lord, as the Holy One of Israel. They approach him as Sir. Give us the bread. Uh, Notice the contrast if you look just at the end of how Jesus' disciples approach him that are truly believing. Verse 68. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see the difference there? One is just standoffish respect, but here you see Peter saying, you're the Holy One. Where else can we go? You have the words, Jesus of eternal life. And Jesus' response to this statement is this great statement, this remarkable statement. Look at verse 35, this great I am statement. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You remember, I am is the divine name that God gave to Moses in Exodus 3, God said, I am that I am. In other words, I am pure being. And Jesus is saying, I am. I am God. I am the essence of pure being, and I am this bread of life. In other words, that my being is satisfaction. And he states this in the negative. He says, you shall not hunger if you come to me, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. In other words, if you come to me, you shall be satisfied. Your thirst will be quenched. But notice how Jesus says we are to come to him. He says, whoever comes to me, and the implication that he's saying is you have to come to me yearning to be fed. You have to come to me yearning to have your thirst satisfied. You have to come to me with nothing in your hands, not your good works, not your good deeds, but you simply come to Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. And Jesus says, this is the way that you must approach Him. You must approach Him dispensing with the formalities and come to Him as your Savior and say, Jesus, where else can I go? Because you have the words of eternal life. And what Jesus says is, if you come to me like that, what will happen is, is that in your innermost being, in your soul, you will find the satisfaction that you're looking for. You will never be hungry. You will never be thirsty. You will have it all. And that's what the world is looking for. And and they're trying to fill it with the bread, right? The materialistic things. But Jesus said, look, if you believe in me, if you come to me 
truly, and I will satisfy those desires of the heart because I am the bread of life. But you can't approach me with the sir stuff. It's got to come as a beggar on your knees asking to be fed and your thirst to be quenched. So he ends with here with this principle that we looked at. We've looked at several weeks. If you look in John chapter 1, it's this principle that John lays out that Jesus taught him. John 1.16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. It is Jesus himself through faith who gives the satisfaction of the soul. It's Jesus himself who brings communion with God. Jesus himself is the true bread. His blood, he's going to explain, is the true drink. And if you come to him in faith and appropriate Jesus, then he says, your soul will be satisfied and you will have peace with God. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And then if you look tragically at verse 36, look what Jesus says. But despite all this, Jesus knows their hearts. He's God. He knows what's in your soul. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Has anybody here seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ personally? I haven't. Nobody has. He's, he's at the right hand of the Father. But we believe. These people, Jesus is standing in front of them, and they're asking for a bread truck, and they don't believe. Listen, don't walk away with a heart of unbelief. Don't walk away saying, because Jesus didn't deliver on my ex, I don't believe. Get your eyes off the material, and to the transcendent. Jesus is true bread, and He satisfies the soul. Heavenly Father, we look to You with all of our hearts. We know, Lord, that You satisfy, that You are the true bread of God from heaven. And Lord, we pray for any of us in here that have an unbelieving heart, a heart that remains unconvinced that says, Jesus, you got to show me more. You got to deliver something for me to believe. Or a heart that says, you know, I really need to add my works to what you have done in order to enter heaven. Or a heart that says, I'm going to approach you as a, respect, as a respected teacher. I, I like being associated with you, Jesus, but I'm not going to approach you humbly as a beggar coming to you to be satisfied. And we pray, Lord, that we would all press in to Christ today in our spiritual lives, that we would not be focused on the things of this world, but the things that are unseen, that we would press into the kingdom, that we would set our gaze on the city that is to come. We ask all this for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.